So today I have with me Jonathan Oxley, who's a senior manager in the Net Zero team at the Confederation of British Industry. I think most people watching this probably know who the CBI are, but if you don't, they speak on behalf of 170,000 businesses of all shapes and sizes across every region and nation in the UK. They have 1,100 corporate members and nearly 150 trade associations. And if you added up all the employees in those corporate members, they would come to over 2.3 million people. So a very big influence. Uh, Jonathan has a uh, long and interesting career looking through his CV. Uh, But let's start at the beginning, Jonathan. Um, How and why did you first become involved in sustainability or, or in particular net zero? Well, first of all, thank you for that very fulsome introduction, Gareth, um, and very good to speak to you. So I really became involved in the sort of, if you like, the more recent aspects of the Net Zero journey, probably about 10 to 15 years ago. Uh, And that was when I was actually working for BP. Uh, And throughout my BP career, I'd had a, a range of interesting roles. But at that point, I started to move into things like alternative fuels. So how can you make fuels from non-conventional means? Uh, Biofuels, uh, at a time when biofuels were, in fact, thought to be a a sort of holy grail in terms of our solution to to get to net zero for transport. Uh, And then thereafter, I worked on a public-private partnership that BP uh, was part of with the UK government, which is all about the role to which, um, the degree rather, to which bioenergy could play a role in the UK's energy needs and done uh, done through a sustainable manner. Right. And and when you were at BP, was that the the beyond petroleum phase of BP? So so indeed, I lived through what was really a very exciting time for many in the organisation and and quite a scary time for many in the oil industry when Lord John Brown at the time Mm -hmm. came out and said, I think actually we probably need to take a precautionary approach here to the role of climate change and the role that uh, oil and gas companies can play in it. So, So that kind of spawned the Beyond Petroleum uh, era of BP, which probably, uh, whilst very far-sighted, I think at the time, was probably maybe around 10 years too early, too far ahead of its time, if anything. Yeah. Yeah. So if that was um, too early, how do you you feel, you know, that business environment has evolved in the intervening time? Well, uh, it certainly has evolved, Gareth. So if you think of some of the other uh, oil and gas majors who were active at that time around the sort of turn of the millennium, companies uh, in particular the likes of uh, Exxon and perhaps Total and, and other companies were certainly slightly taken aback by the stance that BP took at that moment in time. Uh, in, in fact, famously, I think Exxon were a little bit uh, dismissive of the BP approach. Uh, and yet now when I talk with colleagues who happen to work in ExxonMobil, you know, they're very much forged, forging, forging ahead with an agenda that's much more net zero compliant in terms of trying to get their operations and uses their products very much further down the net zero road. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, moving forward to your, your current role, um, the CBI has net zero as one of its four ambitions. How did that come about? Well, the CBI has been uh, very active in this space for a number of years. They had a, a decarbonisation agenda uh, and a, a, an ambition really to see the, the UK industry, UK businesses prosper in the wake of, of various changes that we've had in the legislative and, and government circles over the last several years. And one of those pillars, I think, that was uh, happened happened upon chosen was around the decarbonisation, now what we call the net zero agenda. 
So this is really about how can we continue to grow businesses and ensure that people and places can prosper, but doing so in a way which is sufficiently long-term sustainable that it doesn't do great harm to the planet. Mm -hmm. And did that come from your membership or uh, or what membership uh, engagement process have you have you undergone to yeah, have I mean, one of your big four? We're constantly engaging with our members, as you might imagine, and and we have all sorts of different groups of uh, companies and businesses of all different shapes and sizes who help sort of form our agenda. And, and there was a very active group around the decarbonisation and net zero space. And that's one of the reasons why, despite quite a period of organisational change for the CBI recently, we're very, very clear that we're sticking with that net zero agenda as one of the kind of core pillars of how we take business forward in the, uh, in the 2020s and beyond. And then looking at the the four pledges that that come underneath that that pillar, um, I could summarise them as infrastructure incentives, energy costs, and international leadership. Um, how did that structure evolve? Well, again, so some of this were some of these areas were areas that we were already active in, and uh, you know I think what we've done over the period of sort of since we started a. Um, a more obvious decarbonisation campaign about a couple of years ago or thereabouts, you know, through working with our members and, and working with policymakers and others, uh, we've been able to kind of distill down that agenda into these four new pledges that we we kind of aim to really major on. And it doesn't mean we won't do anything that lies outside those pledge areas, but it does mean that's where the core focus of our activity will be in those pledge areas. And uh, which one gives you most sleepless nights? Gosh, well, I think, uh, you know, up until recently, perhaps I would say maybe around the infrastructure delivery side of things, uh, that's been a real challenge for us. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I have to say with the autumn statement out only yesterday, uh, the day before we're talking, uh, Gareth, you know, there was some encouraging signs, I think, there from the Chancellor of the Exchequer mm -hmm. about some of the particular interventions they're going to make around improving infrastructure delivery in the UK. And a lot of that revolves around things like the time to which one can connect into the grid system. Uh, yeah. And I know National Grid, Ofgem and the government have been working very hard along with our members in terms of that agenda to make sure we can push push along or, or, or reduce those connection times. So maybe yeah, that one gives me less sleepless nights than it did as of about a week ago. <laughs> it's, it's years, isn't it, at the minute? It, absolutely. Get, um, I, you know, I've heard some of our members have talked about connection times of anything up to about 15 years, which, you know, in, in many cases could be any, you know, around half the lifetime of an asset. So if you're making an investment in a piece of equipment, machinery, power generation, whatever, and you know you're going to have to wait 15 years to have some sort of connection to the grid system, either to, to back up renewable generation or to power your equipment, you, that's, that's half the lifetime of an asset. So you can't actually go ahead with that investment plan. Yeah. And international leadership, um, you know, I've, I've heard you talk about not wanting to offshore emissions. Um, perhaps you could expand yeah. on that a little bit. So, so you know, until, until quite recently, and we've had a, a succession of um, prime ministers and, and different political leaders of all different levels within the UK government over the last few years for varying different reasons. But we've we've certainly had some interesting takes in terms of where the UK should be and indeed how we're perceived by people from outside the UK. And, you know, rhetoric around we want to be the Saudi Arabia of wind, uh, it gives a fantastic kind of headline. And and to be fair, the level of aspiration, vision, ambition, call it what you will behind that is is was very good. Uh, and 
thereafter, we have had plans and targets as to how we're going to become the so-called Saudi Arabia of wind. So we've had some real kind of attention from around the world in terms of what the UK is trying to do. Now, principally, a lot of that has been around the decarbonisation of our electricity grid, which is fantastic through things like wind, for example. But also in terms of things like industrial decarbonisation, where, you know, personally, I've had uh, interactions and engagements with people from Louisiana in the US, from California, from the Netherlands, from Germany, from uh, New South Wales. I've spoken with Swiss investor houses about this. Uh, so there's a lot of people around the world who are talking about this. And the World Economic Forum actually said uh, at the start of their industrial cluster program, they said there are two really important clusters to watch out for from the point of view of industrial decarbonization and the, the way they're going about it. One is in China and the other is the Humber in the UK. So, yeah. so this is the sort of level of attention that the UK and some of our projects have, have received from overseas. You have spent a lot of time working with industry in the Humber uh, on decarbonization. I certainly have, yes. With yeah. businesses, again, big and small, there's a role for almost every business to consider how it gets to uh, a net zero, greener, cleaner way of uh, doing sustainable business. Yeah, because it's uh, I live in the northeast, um, north of the Humber, and uh, Northumberland means north of the Humber. Uh, the, um, but you know, for those who don't know, there's a, I suppose always a debate within uh, British politics about whether net zero targets would simply drive industry overseas, so we don't get any. Um, I mentioned offshoring of carbon emissions, so we don't get any global carbon benefit but the um but the british economy uh suffers so um you know do, from your experience do you have any insights on how to how to square that circle yeah absolutely i mean it's a great point uh, gareth and you're very it's a very good one to raise uh, you know this is where things like carbon border adjustment mechanisms come into play and we've certainly seen some quite positive moves from a european perspective I know the UK government has its eye on this, uh, and I think we're going to be seeing some consultation come out on it in the, the fairly uh, fairly not too distant future, I think. Uh, and that's all about effectively trying to equilibrate or equalise um, how those different activities might work. So if you've got manufacturers or businesses who are investing the money in the UK in order to do their business in a, a more sustainable way, reduce the carbon intensity of their products or their services, for example, the last thing we want to do is simply for somebody else who's not invested and therefore not producing their products in a greener way from, from overseas, wherever that might be in the world, to simply go, OK, well, I can sell my products now more cheaply than the indigenous products or services in the UK. Therefore, effectively, offshoring our CO2 emissions. And we really don't want to see that happen to any extent. And yes. so therefore, apply, um, deploying things like carbon border adjustment mechanisms, and having a one eye on things like carbon leakage or potential carbon leakage is very, very important. And, and those, those conversations are quite difficult and nuanced because they also enter into things like or impact potentially in areas like world trade uh, terminology and world trade aspects. So there's a lot to be considered in that in terms of the policy making there. But it's a very important thing that we do. Yeah, yeah. And it it gets us away from that sort of race to the bottom, doesn't it? Um, and they, I suppose it, uh, you know, it, it, it's an extra financial incentive on on businesses overseas as well. Then to to reduce, you know, the embodied carbon and anything they're importing into the UK. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, a great example would be steel, and and you know, steel production in the UK has got a bit of a a difficult uh, track record over the last uh, several decades, and that was one of the things I mentioned at the Net Zero Northeast event just a, a few weeks earlier. Um, but but steel, there's a manufacturer in Sweden now who is uh, you know very close to, if not just started up, production of green steel. Uh, and in their development process, people said, no, this won't make any economic sense. There's no point in doing it. Great ambition, but, you know, how far is it going to go? Uh, the last I heard, I think their order books were, I think, fully fully taken up for about the next five or if not 10 years in <laughs> yeah. terms of green steel production. So there's clearly a market out there for products like steel that have been decarbonized. Absolutely. Absolutely. And... Um... You know, you. I think you've probably summarised the the challenges um, from the business point of view within the pledges, things like grid connections and uh, incentives and whatnot. But um, in terms of selling the net zero agenda internally and externally, what are the what challenges do you find in doing that? Well, I, th I think there's a lot of challenge still in various uh, areas of the country around the costs of getting to net zero and the complexities of getting to net zero. So, so actually what we talked about in terms of grid connections, Gareth, and indeed planning regulations or speeding up planning, they're sort of the tactical levers that you deploy in terms of getting business to net zero and, and an entire country for that matter. Mm. I think strategically, one of the things or two of the things that our members talk a lot about. So one is clarity of long-term policy. Now, now businesses do not need uh, absolute certainty around enduring constancy of policy. Mm. They expect and anticipate that things will change. But what they do need is a consistent direction and they need a degree of clarity about when any changes are coming down the line around policies. Now, they could be net zero policies or any other policies. It, it doesn't really matter. So the longer term, more strategic thinking around policy direction and any changes is important for businesses because they will yeah. respond as and when the changes come along. The other aspect that we hear a lot, actually, is about the siloed approach to policymaking and regulation. And, and that's almost always unintentional which yeah. is where we might end up with a really good policy around carbon capture and storage, a really good policy around hydrogen production, a really good policy around hydrogen usage. But as to how those policies intermesh and interweave, it may not necessarily be quite as, as good as the individual policies themselves. So this, the, the sort of joined up policymaking is, is really important to businesses. And of course, this plays out not just with businesses, but with consumers and, and members of the public too. So, so, so one of the aspects that leads to complexity and additional cost. So that, you know, just to summarise that, if you could wave a magic wand to make a lot of this happen, that clarity of purpose and consistency would be, sounds like, uh, would be high on your list, your wish list. It, it absolutely would be. And I, and I think you we talked a little bit about the international dimension earlier. So, mm -hmm. so one of the things we've heard, uh, you know, in the recent weeks has been around things like changes to the potential legislation or actual legislation rather around internal combustion engines, around gas boilers and so on and so forth. And, and it wasn't necessarily the nuts and bolts content of that speech that made a difference, albeit it does if you're in the uh, automobile or the, the gas boiler heat pump business. But it was more the perception 
And here is where perception can become very important. It becomes reality. If you're an overseas investor, for example, or an overseas company or financial investor, uh, and you see that policies can change in fairly short order, where where a, a time window moves by five years, that gives you quite a high level of uncertainty around you know changes that may come in other policy areas, for example. Yes. And, and so international perspective can be important in terms of some of those uh, policy-making decisions and how they're rolled out. And it was noticeable that the, the loudest cries of anguish when those announcements were made were from industry. They weren't from you know, the green activist sector. Uh, it was very clear that business didn't like it. Um, if I could pick up, because you've mentioned investors hmm. a, a couple of times and... Um, I have to find a question around this, but um, um, it's becoming a theme in these interviews of investor pressure. Mm. So I was wondering what the the CBIs or or your personal perspectives on that are. Is it is this now being driven by uh, investors? I, I think it's certainly a much higher up the agenda for investors. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at things like the amount of uh, money that's being invested, for instance, in certain sectors of the economy, in more conventional energy exploration, uh, et cetera, compared to renewable or sustainable energies, there's still quite an imbalance, but it's certainly changing and it's heading in the right direction. You know, I've, I've had relatively speculative investors get in touch with me saying they, they're interested in investing potentially one to two billion in projects in the UK or in the Humber, uh, and where can they put that money? And the honest answer is actually that there aren't uh, opportunities for them to put that money in just yet. Right. And it's not because those opportunities don't exist in a sense, i.e. the projects are actually there or, or on the books. It's actually the, the, the companies, the businesses running those projects don't have a need for any additional finance. All right. and, and that's a positive sign yeah. oh, yeah. in as much as they know how they will secure their finance to invest a billion or two billion or three billion in the project. So, mm-hmm. so the investment potential is definitely there. And I think what we're seeing is a, a, a latent ambition now from other investors to uh, invest in, in other areas of the net zero agenda. And um, I don't know whether you'd have visibility of this, but are you seeing divestment from high carbon industries or you know high carbon projects? You know, the, the, this idea of stranded assets is yeah. sort of always has been bubbling around for a while, but the idea that you know, if you have an asset which is intrinsically high carbon, then its its value is going to drop uh, as we move to a low carbon economy. Yeah, I, I mean, I haven't seen so much in terms of divestment per se, uh, although there have been some sort of instances of investors who've chosen to move away from those sorts of assets. Uh, the Church of England, I believe, being one, for example, mm-hmm. so they've moved their portfolio out of conventional oil and gas. What we certainly have seen is an interest in in some businesses to pivot progressively away from that. Now, whether they're a conventional energy company, whether they're an investor, whether they're a consulting business or a supplier, they're certainly starting to explore more deeply areas that would take them away from the conventional oil and gas side. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 companies who have oil and gas as part of their core activities are trying to make sure that they can, for the most part at least, trying to make sure that they can um, do undertake their activities in the most efficient manner possible. So if you are going to use oil and gas, you're doing it in the most efficient way you possibly can. That's the very first step. 
uh, and they're trying to understand how they can reduce the carbon intensity of their products or turn them into products that have uh, a much lower carbon intensity through things like carbon capture and storage, for example. So you can continue to the degree to which you can continue to use methane, but you can decarbonize it to produce blue hydrogen. Yeah. And it's not because that's the, the be all and end all solution, but it's one of the potential tools in the toolbox to help us get towards a, a cleaner, greener world. Yes. Uh, I think if I had a magic wand, I would make the, the hydrogen economy happen. It's been it's been bubbling along for a, a long time, but it's never seemed to break through the way um, electrification yeah. has in, in terms of the low carbon economy. Well, well, you know, it's ironic that hydrogen is the simplest molecule in the universe mm -hmm. uh, and it's also the most abundant molecule in the universe. And yet here we are still talking, you know, decades or certainly years down the line around the role of hydrogen. But ironically, for, for those who remember things like Towns gas back in the 60s and 70s, Towns gas was anything up to 50% hydrogen at the time. Yeah. So, so we have been using hydrogen and in things like refineries and chemical works and production of ammonia for many, many years. So mm -hmm. we do actually quite well understand hydrogen and how we can use it. Just we haven't got our heads around using it as a vector in the, the sort of energy transition to any great degree yet. Yeah, fantastic. If we could go back, um, I suppose to your your personal journey again. Uh, what uh, what's your your proudest achievement? Um, what looking back, are, are you uh, you know whether it's a personal achievement or a, a team achievement? Um, uh, what would you? Like it would bring you a smile on your deathbed if <laughs> that's not too too dark gosh, gosh, a smile metaphor. Yeah. I think I think one of the most exciting periods and one of the periods I was proudest of proudest of was uh, whilst I worked at the Energy Technologies Institute, this public private partnership which was set up under Gordon Brown in the UK government, and it comprised six private sector enterprises: BP, which is my connection into it, BP, Shell, Caterpillar, Rolls Royce, EDF and E.ON, subsequently joined by Hitachi. And uh, they were all set to work on projects in conjunction with the UK government that were deemed not very profitable, too hard to do, uh, in intractable problems, et cetera. Uh, and I spent about four and a half years uh, at the Energy Technologies Institute working on the, the role that sustainable bioenergy could have in the UK. And we actually worked uh, out that sustainably without uh, having any deleterious effect on landscapes, the environment, et cetera, et cetera, you could probably uh, generate anything in the region of about 10 to 15% or so of the UK's power needs from bioenergy, yeah. uh, purely domestically. Um, now, you could actually push it up to 20% or more, but then that would involve things like you know growing on the fringes of golf courses, harvesting down the side of railway lines, which is a bit problematic, but it can be done. Um, so, so the role that, that bioenergy can have in a sustainable way for the UK's power production was certainly one of the proudest things. But I think I'm actually just really proud that I was able to work in that environment. And it was a real early um, lesson for me in terms of the power of collaboration. So yeah. here you had BP and Shell, two oil and gas majors working very, very closely together. You had E.ON and EDF, two energy powerhouses working very, very closely together. Uh, and Rolls-Royce and Caterpillar, both of whom were in the sort of either mobile vehicle or engine or turbine production side, working yeah. very, very closely together. And it just showed me that the light bulb moment, I think, Gareth, was the fact that as competitors, you can work very closely together in these areas. Yeah. And, and, and my, my lesson from that, I think, was that unless as a competitor organization, 
if you're working in collaboration but not constantly having to double check that you're not in breach of competition law, you're probably not collaborating hard enough to get us through the energy transition. Yeah. It was just reminding me of um, creating shared value, which was uh, a buzz phrase about 10 years ago. But I actually, <laughs> I was always disappointed at um it fell into disuse because this idea of uh, you know creating a bigger pie rather than fighting over the pie exactly. that's there um, appeals to me, and I, I I I still think that concept has legs, but for some reason it has fallen off the the the, the sort of uh, the buzzword bingo cards. Yeah, I, I don't think it. Yeah, I mean it's not disappeared. So the work yeah. that we did on decarbonising the Humber Industrial Cluster Plan, for example, yeah. we worked with. Uh, ERM, Arup, and KPMG, three big powerhouse consulting organizations who all came together to deliver the outputs of the Humber Industrial Cluster Plan. So it can be done. Mm-hmm. It's it's not straightforward, uh, and it does need a lot of sort of vision, inspiration, and drive to make it happen, but it absolutely can be done, and I think it's the right thing to do. Fantastic. So just to finish, if one of your members uh, picked up the phone, rang you, Say just a, a medium-sized widget manufacturer, just as an example, and said, um, we've done nothing on net zero whatsoever. Uh, what? Do, where do we start? What would your advice for them be? Well, f- first of all is absolutely do get in touch and, and get in contact. The, the one thing the CBI is very good at doing is it just has a wide range of knowledge and a wide range of contacts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we can start to talk things like, talk about things like, you know, has the business looked to B Corp status, for example? That's one good thing. Has it considered things like uh, science-based targets initiative, SBTI? Have you done any research? Do you know where your business might lie or, or map against the sustainable development goals? And, and the answer to those three questions as exemplars might be, we don't know any of that stuff. Just mm-hmm. help us. Okay, great. So now we understand what basis we're dealing from. Uh, and we can put you in contact with uh, organizations like uh, OES Net Zero, for instance, which is an organization in the Humber area who connects businesses uh, in the Humber area or the CBI itself. We, if we know what your business is, we can help connect you with others who've been on this journey um, and, and share some of that experience with you. So it's a great, uh, provides a great kind of convening power and connecting force in order to help businesses on their journey to net zero. Fantastic. Well, we've covered a huge amount of ground there. Thank you very much for joining us. No, you're welcome, Gareth. Not a problem. It's been my pleasure. Great talking to you.